You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Today's show is also brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Scurvy Pete, Kane, Kinway, Hefei, Zuman, Blacktip, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalinde, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Bruges, Antwerp, Luxembourg, Alsace-Lorraine, Ypres, Dunkirk. Today, these names might invoke an image of idyllic Belgian countryside, but to our grandparents and great-grandparents, they were something else. For those of us with a passion for history, especially those with an interest in military history, those names are familiar. They invoke images of some of the darkest moments of our past, as well as some of the moments of greatest hope and heroism. August 1914, the Schlieffen Plan, the Western Front, trench warfare, mustard gas, and the Battle of Passchendaele, the Maginot Line, the Blitzkrieg, Operation Dynamo, the Holocaust and then Case Yellow. The country surrounding those cities has seen, throughout their history, an untold number of battles. Still today, they'll find debris from one or another of the many wars fought on that soil. But those battles go much farther back than the 20th century. They go into the mists of prehistory. It was home to a number of Celtic tribes when recorded history finally caught up to the region in 54 BCE when Julius Caesar conquered the territory of the Belgae. That territory, that chunk of land, was the northernmost point of Roman conquest on the continent. It housed the northernmost garrisons against the Germani tribes, and it topped off a front that stretched for hundreds of miles. Even during the Pax Romana, there was never really a period of true peace on that front. And that frontier, that split between Roman lands and German lands, would define the region, well, really until the present day. When Rome pulled back to Italy, the region once again fell into war. This time, it was between the Romanized Gauls and their German neighbors. Eventually, the Merovingian Franks would push the Saxons out of the region, and under Charlemagne and his heirs, the Carolingian dynasty, the Holy Roman Empire would secure the region and defend it from the Saxons. Eventually, though, that Frankish kingdom would split, and the region would once again be the home of fierce fighting. Eventually, it would be split between what would one day become France and Germany. When things had finally begun to settle down, The Vikings invaded from the North Sea. 
The Vikings terrorized the people of the region, and their kings, who were in cities far removed from this region, could really do little to help them. That was when, in 862 CE, a local nobleman, through a bit of diplomacy and a well-placed marriage and a bit of his own fighting, was named the first count of the region, what would become known as the County of Flanders. Under that count and his heirs, Flanders experienced a boom. Many of the autonomous city-states nearby were incorporated into Flanders. Largely, they did so through a mutually beneficial commercial agreement. Flanders grew to be larger than their neighboring kingdom of France. This was when part of what we would consider modern-day France was also occupied by the Norman kings. This upset the French king, and in the 12th century he invaded Flanders. He conquered what would then become known as French Flanders in the southwest of the region. The rest of Flanders would flounder. The Black Death visited her shores, and then the Hundred Years' War between England and France saw some of those mutually beneficial commercial agreements become less beneficial. Eventually, what was left of the County of Flanders was incorporated into the House of Burgundy under the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. He was himself born in Flanders. Through a series of wars and a system of complicated dynastic inheritance, which actually we've covered most of that on this show before, what was once French Flanders became the Spanish Netherlands, and what was once Burgundian Flanders became part of the United Dutch Provinces. In the 19th century, Flanders would eventually become part of Belgium, named after that tribe conquered by Caesar back in 54 BCE. The region would go on to play a key role in the Napoleonic Wars, the Franco-Prussian War, and both world wars. But that region, call it Flanders or French Flanders or the Spanish Netherlands, has been a key factor in every war that we've talked about here on this show, usually fighting between French kings and German emperors. The Eighty Years' War? If you'll recall, the Bildenstrom set off the Dutch Revolt in 1566, and that first erupted in a town called Steenvoort, which was once French Flanders and now belonged to the Spanish Habsburg Netherlands. The English Civil War? Well, yeah, that happened on English soil, but the soldiers that fought there earned their stripes fighting in the Dutch War for Independence. The Thirty Years' War that followed? Well, that happened all across Central Europe, but France, Spain, and England were mostly interested in fighting in and fighting over once French Flanders, now the Spanish Habsburg Netherlands. The War of Devolution was when the French Bourbons tried to reclaim some of once French Flanders from the Spanish Habsburg Netherlands. The First and Second Anglo-Dutch Wars were fought between England and the United Dutch Provinces. Really, the Spanish Netherlands shouldn't have been involved at all. But both of those wars proved to be a good opportunity for Bourbon France to stick her nose in and try to wrest some of once French Flanders from the Spanish Habsburg Netherlands. The Franco-Dutch War and Third Anglo-Dutch War, which were in many ways the same war, yeah, they were fought largely over the Bourbon French trying to wrest some of French Flanders from the Spanish Habsburg Netherlands. And each of those roles largely played into what was happening in the West Indies and the New World in general. But that last war, the Franco-Dutch-slash-Third Anglo-Dutch War, well, that was when the conflict really boiled over from Europe and infected the West Indies. In the Third Anglo-Dutch War, we see thousands of sailors arrive in the West Indies carrying commissions and letters of mark and flying Bourbon-French colors. 
They were there trying to wrest territory from the Habsburg Spanish. The entire Bucani era was really an extension of those wars. Now, of course, the buccaneers themselves didn't much care about the power politics back in Europe. They were there to make a living. But they got letters of mark and tips on where might be the richest prizes from governors who knew where might be the most tactically advantageous targets. However, that era, when warfare dominated the Caribbean, was coming to a close. They wanted to focus on commerce and building colonies, but in employing those pirates as privateers, the kings in old Europe had unleashed something upon the world that, well, they would never really be able to control. This is episode 53, Twilight of the Buccaneers, part 2. Of course, King Louis and King Charles and all the rest thought they could control the buccaneers. They thought it would really be pretty easy. The plan was basically to entice them back into the fold, to re-enter civilization as productive members of society. They used a carrot-and-stick approach to draw the pirates back in. The stick was simple. Continue pirating and we'll catch you, try you, and hang you. And that worked pretty well, especially for the English. Lynch and Morgan made the English position clear with a series of high-profile hangings. John Coxon, for example, chose to join the Jamaican Navy, as did many others. Pirates like John Cook and Edward Davis and William Wright and Thomas Paine, well, all of them tried to go legit at some point, too. Now, none of them did a very good job, and we'll see them all back on the account in a few years, but all of them tried. The French, though, were less successful with that approach, mostly because they continued to grant letters of mark. Governor Jacques Nebvu, Sieur de Ponquet, was authorized by the Crown to issue those letters when the situation called for it. So rather than the stick of arrest and execution, the French tried to offer the Bucani a carrot. The colony of Haiti, which French officials were now calling Saint-Dominique, was really pretty far removed from the commercial hubs of the West Indies. The Windward Islands were where ships on the Triangle trade bearing slaves and looking for sugar to buy, well, it was where they first landed. The most civilized colonies of England and France and the Netherlands, well, they were found there. There were planters running sugar plantations and their wives. There were slave mongers trading in human lives and their wives. Merchants who traded in all of the goods and currencies of the world and their wives. All of them wore European fashions and had homes built of European architecture, they read European newspapers, which were only a few weeks old, and they had rich, powerful European contacts. But much like Jamaica, Saint-Dominique was deep in Spanish territory. It still had yet to feel the civilizing effects of the slave plantation system and King Sugar himself. They were populated with uncivilized, barbarous, uncouth men who earned their livings at the point of a sword from Spanish pockets. So the men back in France asked how best to civilize these barbarians. The answer was clear. What has always been civilization's driving force? Women. The king and council back in Europe cooked up a plan to start shipping over women to those less refined colonies. The idea was this. We gather up a bunch of less fortunate young women. Maybe we send out agents to some of the local orphanages. 
We ask the sisters that run the place what girls are about to age out of the orphanage and, well, how to put this, aren't exactly likely to become nuns. And we offer those girls a chance at a new life, in the exotic new world. There they can find a husband, a good sugar planter, and settle down on a farm in paradise. Maybe those agents would give those girls a bag of silver to help them along. Perhaps those agents would go to the local brothels. They would offer the women there a chance at a new life. They can go to the new world, find a husband, a good planter, and settle down on a farm in paradise. However, if we're being honest here, those agents likely asked the pimps who ran the brothels which girls they could part for for cheap and then packed them on a ship and told them to go find a husband over on the edge of the world. Maybe they gave those women a smaller bag of silver to help them along. And then those agents would have gone to the prisons. There was probably less speeding around the bush in those situations. Women were picked out of jails and then sent off to Tortuga with or without their consent, and there was certainly no bag of silver there. Now, there are two important things to note here. First, the English had already tried something like this before. Port Royal had been basically a penal colony for England. Many women were picked out of jails to go to Port Royal. It was also an attempt to curb piracy, but less in a go-find-a-husband kind of way and more of a go-be-a-prostitute kind of way. Remember Mary Carleton, that famous con artist that traveled from town to town with her loyal handmaiden, pretending to be a German princess to con men out of their fortunes? Well, she was among those sent to Port Royal to work in the brothels. Now, she was savvy enough to find her way back to England, but most women weren't so lucky. The French, though, were sending all sorts. It was an express campaign to have these women marry, civilize, and settle the pirate haunts on Saint-Dominique. And then here's the second point. This wasn't the most terrible plan, in theory. In execution, it turned out to be deeply flawed and exploitative, but the idea makes sense. You see, Tortuga was very skewed in favor of men. It had between 80 and 90 percent men in the early days. The very few women that actually lived there fell into two categories, which we touched on last time. There were the women with no prospects back in Europe that found themselves by hook or by crook there in Tortuga to work in the brothels. Those were the women that owned and ran the brothels, what I argue would better be called hospitals, the place where pirates could get a meal and a bed and a drink and care for their wounds if need be and some company, either a woman or, as was common in Tortuga, perhaps a young man. Now let's not romanticize the lives of these women, it was hard going, but they had an ownership stake in the hospital and earned at least decent money. At the very least, it was a far better life than those women who would later be plucked from a debtor's prison and shipped over, forced to work in a brothel owned by a man. But then there were those women that ran the island. While Tortuga's economy may have been fed by piracy, it was run really by a small class of educated women. Now, these weren't noble daughters reciting Latin poetry and discussing the merits of Marcus Aurelius, but they were middle-class merchant's daughters. They could read, they could do arithmetic, and they knew how to run a stable business. That was, frankly, a lot more than anyone else on Tortuga. But both of these types of women, the merchants and the women that ran the hospitals, really ran Tortuga. It was a place where the civilized world hadn't yet arrived to put them in what it thought was their rightful place, and it was also basically a colony at war. 
The men were all brethren of the coast. They were all away on their ships most of the year. The women had to run things back in port. It's not unlike the Athenian women who were really running things back at home. The men were all soldiers, so women ran the shops and the homes and managed the affairs of the city. It's also not unlike the Viking women that were in charge back at home. Now, those Viking women had a societal role that was a lot different, and I think eclipsed those in Tortuga, but you can see similarities. But I think we might best see the similarities in the role of women here in the U.S. during World War II. While the men were all off fighting, it fell to women to run the factories, and the businesses, and the baseball teams, and the homes. If you think of the women in Tortuga as piratical Rosie the Riveters, well... That might be a little bit romanticized, but not tremendously far off. As a side note, if there are any artists out there listening, I would love a painting of a pirate version of Rosie the Riveter. If there are any of you listening that might be interested in doing that, get in touch. Here's the thing, though. After the Franco-Dutch War, France put the kibosh on women running things in Tortuga. They enacted their plan to start sending women to Tortuga, as well as more men, to run things properly. They turned Tortuga into a proper European colony, where men from the East India Company ran the trading houses, where men ran the brothels who didn't care if you beat one of their girls as long as you paid for the privilege, and where men ran the show who absolutely didn't recognize your voice in local politics or your blathering on about rights. In much the same way that women in the post-World War II era didn't appreciate it when the men came back and told them, very good job, now get back in the kitchen, those women who'd been running Tortuga weren't happy when things started to change there. Now, many of them moved on to a settlement outside of Petit Guave, which we talked about last time, Opital. But Tortuga was lost. The French crown now saw their plan through. Officials started showing up and changing things. Planters started arriving to establish sugar plantations, and they began to turn Tortuga into a thriving hub for the slave trade. Women started arriving by the boatload from France to civilize the place. As far as the masters in France saw, things all seemed to be going well. But there were two factors that the French government didn't take into account. First, there were the boucaniers. They weren't interested in any of this. Not the new officials, not the new merchants, not the call to farm, and not the women. I mean, many of them weren't at all interested in anything those women had to offer in the first place. And while a few did choose to settle down and take a wife, most of the pirates followed those other women to Opital. And second, some of those women that they shipped over didn't really seem to take to the place. Many of them couldn't read, so they didn't know how bad things were over in Tortuga when they left, but they discovered quickly. The men there were brutes. They were violent, smelly, drunken pirates, not exactly the polite planters they'd been promised. Tortuga was hot. It had mosquitoes and yellow fever. Not to mention there was a cocktail of diseases that the pirates passed around to all the women, and not a single doctor of any repute in sight. Most of the women who actually intended to find a husband and settle down, well, they were hard-pressed to find one healthy enough to marry. So the women who were shipped to Tortuga misbehaved. However, if a young woman wouldn't find herself a husband, those wig-wearing Frenchmen thought, well, she could find herself plenty of other work. And as long as they weren't in France, they didn't really care how orphans and prostitutes and criminals were treated. I'd like to read a passage here from Laura Sook Duncombe's fantastic book, Pirate Women, 
the princesses, prostitutes, and privateers who ruled the seven seas. Quote, the women of Tortuga were financially dependent on the buccaneers' patronage. While some of these men eventually fell in love with and occasionally married the body women, many more took out their more violent urges on the prostitutes in encounters that were, quote, predatory in nature, John Appleby reports. Rape complaints in nearby Port Royal were, quote, made a jest of even by authority, claimed the state papers from the period. Many of the young, poor, and vulnerable women of the Caribbean, plenty of whom had been deported there, were abused and assaulted by the ruthless buccaneers. The Tortuga of Disney's Pirates of the Caribbean franchise conjures up sassy tarts who slap an offensive man's cheek, but in reality it was the women who were slapped, and worse. End quote. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah, the show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. I wanted to read that passage partly because I love that sassy tarts line and I didn't think I could get away with it on my own, but partly because, well, women in piracy and in the world of the pirates have been characterized as symbols of equality. And that's just not how it was. Life in the West Indies was hard for everybody, but life for women in the West Indies was especially hard. Life among the pirates was not only hard, but deadly and dangerous. Life for women among the pirates, many of whom were Amerindians or Africans, well, that was especially hard and especially deadly. A mediocre man might be able to make his way with the Brethren of the Coast, make his life among the pirates, but for a woman to do the same, she had to be cut from a special kind of cloth. She had to be strong and fierce and intelligent and implacable and defiant. And into that world, into that post-war tortuga of powdered wigs and prostitutes, enters a young woman named Anne. Now, we know virtually nothing about Anne in her early life. And I call her a young woman, but to our modern eyes, she would probably be more like a girl. Probably a teenager who was shipped over from France. 
Now, historians think that she was born in Brittany, but we don't actually know her maiden name, so we can't be sure. Writers have speculated wildly about what circumstances brought her to Tortuga, but again, we don't know. There might be a grand romantic story behind it all. She could have been the daughter of a local nobleman, a man who fought for the rights of his people, until a vile baron invaded his lands, killed Anne's father, and took her mother as a concubine. Then he sent Anne away to Tortuga to meet her fate. And that's the kind of thing that Victorian authors liked to invent about pirates, and some of them said about Anne, but it's almost certainly not the case here. It's more likely that she was the daughter of a prostitute in France, and was sent off to Tortuga to try and salvage her real life. But again, that's speculation. The most likely story, given the statistics about the women sent to Tortuga, is that Anne was probably an orphan, and likely a petty thief back in France who was plucked out of a jail and put on a ship over to the New World. We know she arrived in Tortuga with this wave of women from France, but after that we lose track of her. That's, I suppose, what happened to a lot of women who arrived in Tortuga in those days. So, for the time being, let's return to the pirates. Last time, the pirates we've been following sailed off from a successful raid against Veracruz, deep in the Gulf of Mexico. They had ships full of plunder from the city and about 1,500 slaves traded as ransom for Veracruz's finest. The slaves were actually a problem for the pirates. It doesn't appear that any of the pirates had a moral objection, but exactly what to do with them was a problem. Slaves were hard to smuggle into a city. A bag of plunder or legitimate-looking cargo like indigo, sure, you could do that, but 1,500 human beings, well, that was something else altogether. Plus, then the various trading corporations who operated in the Caribbean and ran the slave trade had a, a strict hold on exactly who was allowed to deal in human flesh. Now, Nicholas von Horn had a letter of mark from Governor Jacques Nebevoux of Saint-Dominique, the governor would be expecting the pirates, and he would be looking forward to their slaves. But Nicholas von Horn was dead. He was buried in an unmarked grave somewhere on the Yucatan Peninsula. Now, Nevu knew that Michel de Grammont was sailing with Nicholas von Horn. Grammont was known and accepted. But the governor was expecting maybe a few slaves, but mostly sugar or indigo or something, 1,500 captured slaves was a tall order for any governor to swallow, even the most complicit. Beyond that, Grammont was expected. Lorho de Graff, on the other hand, was neither expected nor welcome. He was a Dutch pirate of the worst sort, and Napeview wasn't exactly happy with him. So the pirates decided on a plan. They would divide their plunder and sail off in different directions. Lord Hodegraaf would take La Tigre and head north, accompanied by Mikhail Andrezun and La Francesca. Jan Williams and a few others would accompany them. They were headed to the Cayman Islands to sell what slaves they could there, and then onto the islands off the southern coast of Cuba, from where they could smuggle the rest of their slaves onto Jamaica. The rest of the fleet, led by Michel de Grammont, the Saint-Nicolas, and bearing the letter of Marc, well, they would head home to Petit Guave. Grammont had taken command of the Saint-Nicolas and renamed her the Hardy, or the Audacious in English, and was a fitting name after the attack on Veracruz. 
the Colbert, his old ship, he'd passed on to Pierre Le Picard. He and the rest of the fleet headed south along the main so they could catch the winds that would carry them north to Petit Guave and Saint-Dominique. Now de Graff had a fine time of it. He was the greatest of the corsairs, and he proved it once again. He stayed far from the eyes of the Spanish, and he sold the slaves he had on board there in Jamaica without any trouble at all. Port Royal was undergoing a similar transformation to that of Tortuga. They were, in fact, further along in it. Their sugar plantations were famous, and their rum was the most drunk rum in the world. More sugar plantations cropped up every season, so Port Royal needed as many slaves as they could find. The English East India Company there in Port Royal might not look too closely at the origin of any slaves that were sold in what was quickly becoming the largest slave market in the West Indies. Michel de Grammont, on the other hand, was having a harder time. He'd avoided the law as well, but the winds weren't in his favor. It was hard going trying to travel east across the Caribbean. The winds were contrary, and even the most skilled sailors, if they didn't know those winds by heart, well, they might not be able to catch the favorable gusts to carry them either east or north. So Grimaud floundered, and they waited on the wind. For the fleet, this was a problem. Not only did they have 300 or so pirates on their ships, the fleet had a bunch of prisoners left over from Veracruz. You see, the women and children would have been sent back, the governor and maybe the bishop as well, but it was good practice to keep a few of the locals until you were safely back in home waters. Then you could send them home safe and sound, but they were insurance. If you were surprised by a flota of Spanish Coast Guard, it helped your bargaining position to have a few dozen Spanish dignitaries on board that well, might resent being blown out of the water by Spanish Coast Guard. But getting them back safely now seemed less and less likely. The fleet was waiting off the coast, and food was running short. Beyond the pirates and beyond the Spanish prisoners, Grammont also had another problem. He had his share of the slaves to feed. Now, he probably didn't feed them all that well, but keeping them alive was a priority. They were his haul. They would see his men paid at the end of all this. Meanwhile, Lorho de Graff was having his own troubles. He'd successfully sold off the slaves and made a boatload of loot, and then he'd sailed home. By that point, Petit Guave should have offered him a warm welcome. There should have been a pleasant reunion with Grammont and his men, and plenty of idle time to spend their money. But that's not how things worked out for him. The governor was furious with de Graff. Here's what happened. Governor Jacques Nebvu had received word of the raid on Veracruz from the viceroy of Nueva España. Then Governor Nebvu received further word from the French crown. He was recalled to France to discuss the actions taken by those privateers he'd empowered. It was in a lot of ways reminiscent of Governor Modiford after the attack on Panama in 1671. The French then sent over acting Governor Francusnet and... He was there to meet de Graff instead. Now, the acting governor wasn't immensely upset at the raid on Veracruz. The pirates had been empowered to attack the Spanish. After all, they were flying the flag of the Bourbon King of France, and they were attacking Spanish Habsburg territory. So that's all well and good. Maybe they could have chosen a less high-profile target, but that wasn't the problem. 
What upset Francusne? The question that he asked very, very forcefully was, where exactly are all the slaves? Right now, the French crown was going to great lengths and sparing no expense to send supplies, respectable men, and thousands of women to Saint-Dominique. They were trying to build a profitable colony here and willing to allow the pirates to do business, if they supplied the needed goods. Right now, the needed goods were slaves to work the sugar plantations, and Lorho, Cornelis, Baudouin de Graaf, this Dutch scoundrel, had used a French commission to steal Spanish slaves, and then he sold them to the English. That was unacceptable. Now, if things had gone according to the plan, Grammont should have already been back in Petit Guave and sold his windfall of slaves. That would have sated the governor. He would have been happy, so de Graaf could have slipped in unnoticed. But things had not gone according to plan. Grammont was still sitting idle. He was still becalmed in the sea off of the main. And things for him had gone from bad to worse. People were starving on board. They were rationing the water, and things looked grim. The slaves, their cargo, the human beings that meant their payday, well, they were no longer a priority. Getting home alive was the priority. Meanwhile, back in Tortuga, things weren't going well for the young Anne either. Probably. She'd arrived in Tortuga penniless and friendless. Again, probably. If her story were anything like the majority of the women sent to Tortuga, she was likely forced to work in a brothel. And not one of those hospitals, just a regular brothel. Now, she was still young, and later reports would remark on her beauty, so it was probably one of the nicer establishments, but it still wasn't a pleasant life. It was around that time that she would have heard what was likely the first major news of the buccaneers that had cropped up since she arrived in Tortuga. Now, she knew buccaneers. They still called in Tortuga, and many of them called on her bed as well. Some of them were kind, some of them were brutal, and most just weren't memorable. But down in Petit Guave, where she'd heard things were better, the most famous pirate of them all had arrived. Now, all of this is speculation. I don't know that Anne heard this story, and I don't want to paint her here as some sort of maiden in despair, longing for Prince Charming to come and rescue her. But things probably weren't going very well for her. She probably wasn't particularly happy right then. And then she would have heard tales of Lorho de Graaf. He was, according to those tales, tall, blonde, handsome, and remember, quote, he always carries violins and trumpets aboard with him to entertain and amuse others. He is further distinguished by his courtesy and good taste. Overall, he has won such fame that when it is known he has arrived at some place, many come from all around to see with their own eyes whether Lorenzo is made like other men. End quote. If you were a teenager, forced to take work in a brothel, well, that might sound quite appealing. And what exactly was the news that she heard about Lorenzo? Well, de Graff had marched on the governor's mansion with 120 men. He'd threatened to see the governor killed and burn his home to the ground. The governor was threatening all sorts of retribution against the pirates, and the pirates weren't having it. So, handsome, courteous, 
but also the sort of man who terrified the sort of men that brought you here and made you work in a brothel. Lorenzo might sound very much like a Prince Charming. Meanwhile, though, things were finally looking up for Michel de Grammont. The pirates had been stranded for weeks when a stroke of luck finally came their way. In late July 1683, the merchantman La Nuestra Señora de la Candelera sauntered right into their path. The pirates immediately took the ship, but in this one instance they were hoping that the ship wasn't carrying gold and gems. They needed food, and they needed it desperately. This time they were in luck. The ship carried flour, which the pirates loaded onto their ships. They also loaded water and sails and what other foodstuffs the Spanish might have on board. Grimaud left the Spanish enough to get home safely, though. He also unloaded a number of his Spanish prisoners aboard La Candelera. Now, the pirates impressed five Spanish sailors into service, but it was understood that they would be sent home as soon as Grimaud made it home. You see, the pirates were weak. I mean, they were hungry. They hadn't eaten anything in, in days. Frankly, they needed the help to make it to Saint-Dominique. In addition, though, Grimaud gave the captain of the Spanish ship a pass. It was a note, signed by him personally, that allowed the Spanish vessel safe passage from any privateers that might also intercept the ship. All of this, to me, smacks of a genteel exchange. I mean, yeah, they were pirates, they might have sacked Veracruz, they might have Spanish prisoners and Spanish slaves on board, but, well, these men were starving. And they were also armed. It made sense on both sides to see that this little interaction went as politely and smoothly as possible. So with their new Spanish pilots on board, the pirate fleet was able to get underway. They brought Grimaud and the fleet safely into Petiguave. Grimaud and de Graff and all the rest had their happy reunion, and the governor, who had backed down, was finally sated with the arrival of several hundred human beings to work on their sugar plantations. So he gave de Graff and Grimaud leave to undertake another raid. Everyone knew that they had been given permission to raid again, but everyone wondered where exactly were they going. Well, it was going to be big, and it was going to be explosive. Now, you might be wondering right now why I chose to begin today's episode with a, frankly, unwieldy amount of history about Flanders, about the constant warfare that had been seen there between French and Germanic, or Spanish Habsburg, interests. Well, believe it or not, it ties in. After the attack on Veracruz, conducted by von Horn, de Graff, and Grammont, Governor Napeview was recalled to France. King Louis and his council spoke to him about the situation in the West Indies, about exactly what had happened in the raid. And King Louis decided that this pirate raid on the city of Veracruz was a perfect excuse for him to send his armies back into Flanders to try to wrest control of some territory from the Spanish Habsburg Netherlands. Now, this attack was a large-scale military invasion, but it would be fought on two fronts. That attack into Flanders would be accompanied by another attack, carried out by pirates halfway around the globe at Cartagena. And what about Anne? There in Tortuga, well, for her, things were going better as well. While 
De Graff and Grammont were busy planning their next big explosive piratical raid. Anne had fallen in love. She'd gotten married. Her husband's name was Pierre Lelong. He was a buccaneer that had taken France up on their offer. He'd settled down, he'd bought a farm, and he'd entered into local politics. And then he met a beautiful young woman. She had a past that was as storied as his own, but now they were married. They were preparing to settle down and start a family. We didn't know Anne's maiden name, but we know now that her name was Anne Lelong. And if that were the end of her story, of a young woman who'd been forced to go to Tortuga, who'd weathered the storms of the West Indies, and who'd finally made good, that would be a story worth telling, because there were thousands of women who had a story just the same. But we don't know Anne's name because she had a peaceful life and started a family. We know her name because she will soon be the most famous woman in the Brethren of the Coast. Next time, we're going to continue following these three names. We're going to follow them to a grand sea battle. We're going to follow them to a failed piratical raid. And we're going to follow them to the end of the buccaneering era. We're going to follow them in a great sea battle. We're going to follow them on an essentially failed piratical raid. And we're going to follow them to the end of the buccaneering era in the West Indies. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd also like to thank everybody who has helped support the show, either by leaving us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever it is you happen to listen to the show, or by giving us a shout-out on Reddit or Twitter, or by becoming a patron on Patreon. Without all of you, I couldn't do this. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, I certainly suggest you do so over at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight